Ask God to bless our time now as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we're grateful uh, that you have spoken to us, that you haven't left us floating in a world without any reference point, but you've given us a point of yourself, of your word, of who you are, and who we are in reference to you. Ask this morning that as we read your word that, that you would take its truth and you would apply it to our lives, that you would enable us to, to fix our lives so that the way we live day in and day out, the things we do and the things we don't do, the, the values we have and the things we don't value, the things that we desire would be somehow crafted by the truth of who you are so that our lives would be truly formed to you. This is something that you have to do, but this process of coming and worshiping and listening and praying and singing is all a part of that. And we ask this morning, this part, as we look at your word, that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd ask you to open your Bibles to uh, Psalm chapter 104. Psalm 104. Um, you know, last week Chad preached, for those of you here, on, on Revelation and Revelation chapter 12 and just did a great job with that. And, you know, I looked at Revelation chapter 13 and I saw dragons and beasts and leopards and things like that. And I said, no, nah, I, I think I'll do a psalm. And so <laughs> we are at Psalm 104. And honestly, the... Uh, this psalm, for whatever reason, over the last four or five months, has just been one I've gone back to. I've read consistently. Uh, just read it over the course of the weeks and thought about it. It's really provided for me a kind of a reference point in life and who God is and, and creation. And as we read through it this morning, um, just a, a little hint. It, it took me a, a number of times to read before I even saw this. But if you think about this psalm as we read, read through it, I want you to think about Genesis chapter 1 and the Christian account. Because what this psalm is, is a meditation on Genesis chapter 1 and, and God's creation. As the psalmist is writing, you can almost picture that he's got in the back of his mind Genesis 1 and the account there of creation. At the same time, he's looking out his window or whatever they would do in that day and age. And he's looking at creation. He's taking in his own experience. And he is. it's driven by his meditation on God as the creator as he looks at creation. So... As we work through this, you'll see the days of creation represented, not in a kind of a sequential way, but throughout this psalm. Psalm 104, we're going to read through the whole thing. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and ministers of flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should not be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment and the water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. 
The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure, endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the mount, on the, he looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. There's a scene in a movie that I happen to like pretty well. It's a movie called Apollo 13. And if you've seen it, you know the story of the, the, the crew and the, and the ship that had the malfunction, you know, the Houston, we have a problem and all that. But in, the, in a particular scene in the movie that strikes me, as they were coming back from circling the moon, they've shut down all their systems basically to conserve power, and they're waiting, they're trying to make their way back to Earth, and they're trying to get the trajectory straight. But what the guys at the ground crew down in the command control or whatever they're called down there, they realize that they're, they're drifting and that their course is off. And what they have to do is they have to kind of refire the, the rockets so that they can adjust their course. But they realize that the particular guidance system that they have has been shut down, and so they have nothing to go by. So they're asking the question, how can we direct their course? What is it we can do to give them something to shoot for? And the commander at that point realizes that all they need is one fixed point in space to guide them, to set their trajectory so that they can move and they can make their way home. And so Jim Lovell at that point says, we need a fixed point to determine attitude, to keep our path straight. And indeed, they, what they do is they take earth and they put it in the crosshairs in, in, the, uh, in the window of the capsule they're in, and then they fire the rockets. And their goal is to keep the earth in the crosshairs, and it's going to provide for them the fixed point that they need that will guide their ship as they try to reset their trajectory on their course. And in, this, in the scene, it's really an interesting scene because you see it's kind of an awkward movement as they're traveling, but their primary goal as a team is to maintain that earth in the window, that immovable object so that will direct their course. And it's a great picture of this fixed point in space for them because it must be a frightening thing to float around in space without anything to reference from. It must be a frightening thing to be floating around out there and even at one point in the scene they lose the, moon, the sun or the earth altogether and then they finally find it oh there it is and they keep going. But it's an even more dangerous and frightening thing to float through life without anything fixed, without anything to look for that doesn't change or shift or move. 
And for the psalmist, as he writes Psalm 104, and he observes creation, he observes the way that it's put together in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, it becomes a kind of fixed point of reference for him to help him know how he's to live. For the community, certainly, that used the psalms in their worship, it was the same kind of thing. It was what is true, what is certain, what is immovable. It is God's creation. It's God. It's seeing him in and through his creation. It's a part of that. And so it was for the community and for us as well. It becomes a fixed point in space to guide us. How we live, where we go, where we've come from, how we are in relationship to God. And as we look at this psalm this morning with that in mind, a fixed point, we want to do a couple things. First of all, we'll look a little bit at the backdrop of the psalms in general and this psalm in particular and and how it's crafted and what to do with that. Secondly, I want to look at kind of the flow and the imagery in the psalm to help us understand what's happening here. And then finally, there's a, there's a question that I want to ask. It's really the same question that the Heidelberg question, number 28, that we did in our worship, ask. And the question goes like this. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? How does knowledge or reflection or meditation on God's creation and providence, how does it help us? How does it guide us? How does it provide a fixed point in space? What kind of fruit does it bear in our lives? And so that's the question I want to answer this morning as we look at this psalm. But first of all, some of the background on Psalm 104. Of course, I'd mentioned that the psalms really are a hymn book for the Israel. They would use it to worship. They would use it in, in, as a part of their worship. They would use it as they would travel. They would use it in certain settings and certain feasts and festivals they were part of. It was a thing that guided their worship, and so they would sing these. And so what happens, it's not just the words, it's the songs, it's the images become a part of and becomes very formative in their life as a church, as, a, as the, the people of God, as they sought to follow him. The Psalms are broken down into five different books, and they're not randomly placed like that, 150 Psalms. But there's purpose for each of the books, and we don't have time to go into all of that. But, but this Psalm 104 finds its place right in book number four, which is really a high point in the Psalms as a whole and carries with it one of the central themes of the book as a whole. And the theme is God is king. The, there's a frame, refrain that continues to resound in it that is God is king, that our Lord reigns throughout the 90 from, verse, from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. And 104 is in the middle of that. As we think about God as king and we look at this, it'll help inform what's taking place here, that he reigns. Secondly, it's important to see that that Psalm 103 and 104 go together. That oftentimes there's a connection and there's these literary devices that point to that. And if you look at the very beginning of Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then you look at the end of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The beginning of Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul, and again at the end of Psalm 104. And what it tells us, the author is saying, these two go together. That each of these carry a theme that interlocks with each other. That the Psalm 103 has a theme, Psalm 104 has a theme, and the two need to be placed together if we're going to get a full and more comprehensive view of who God is. And so the theme that's in Psalm 103 connects and, and, and coordinates with Psalm 104. And if I could put it like this, and you can go back to one of the messages in December, Bill preached on uh, Isaiah 9, and one of the titles of, of, of God was Everlasting Father, and he used 103 as a central text in looking at God as Father there. But essentially Psalm 103, that the message there, if it's the message you would see that God is seen as Savior, 
And if you go to Psalm 104, you see that the message is God is creator. Psalm 103, you see that God is seen as merciful, that he's loving kind, he's, he's full of loving kindness. And then if you go to Psalm 104, you see that God is mighty, that he's majestic, that he's powerful. Go to Psalm 103, and you see he's identified as father. Go to Psalm 104, you see he's identified as sustainer provider, the one who upholds all of his creation. And so each of them together have a place to fulfill and to help us understand this picture of who God is. So the two go together. We need to keep that in mind. And we'll, I'll touch on that here in just a little bit. Thirdly, Psalm 104, as I mentioned, is a meditation on Genesis 1, on the creation account. The author looks out the window and he's meditating on creation, and he writes this as a response to what he sees that's driven by God as creator, as accounted for in Genesis chapter 1. But finally, as we think about the backdrop of the psalm, it's important to understand that as he writes this, it's not written in a vacuum, but it's written in an immediate context of the pagan cultures around Israel at that time. So it's not just, a, it's not just something he's writing, it's writing and he has a view to pagan countries around them, who are, guess what, worshiping the very aspects of nature and creation that he is going to put into his psalm. In fact, there's similarities between Psalm 104 and many other hymns that were sung by pagan countries and two pagan gods in the area of that time. You can go directly to an Egyptian hymn to the sun that is very similar in places as this particular psalm. And you see, that's not accidental. It's not an accident that those happen to be reflective of each other. Because you can see what the psalmist is doing. He's writing in this context, and he writes in a similar kind of way. He says, I know that there's other gods that are worshipped. There's the sun and the moon and the stars and many of the things that are worshipped. But as I craft this psalm in, in view of Genesis chapter 1, we need to understand that all of those gods that are worshipped by the nations around us, those gods have been created by the God that we worship. And he places them directly in opposition with each other. He says, our God is transcendent over those. And in fact, you can read through Psalm 104 and you see that the son who is worshipped in the other psalms, on the other hymns by these other nations, is subordinate to our God. That he's created, that the son is created by God and it's under his complete and utter Control. And so we see that this background, this backdrop helps us understand that the psalmist is writing to Israel in the context of a culture that has ideas that oppose God. And you can imagine that, right? The sun looks like it gives life. Oh, it brings life, and of course it does. But wait, wait, don't stop there. Because it's not just the sun that needs to be worshipped, but you need to go a little further back. The one who ordained it so that that sun would give life is the one that we ultimately worship. And so don't be confused by what looks like it's life-giving, but understand that the one who stands behind it, the one who stands transcendent over it is the one who's to be worshipped. And so this psalm is crafted to speak against those ideas of the culture that set up other gods, which are really in opposition to the true and one and real God. So it's set in a culture that's there. So it gives us a little bit of backdrop. How the two are connected with Psalm 103 and 104, and then with the backdrop of the culture. We're going to touch on that in just a minute. Real quick, I want to walk through some of the imagery. This last week, as I worked through all this, it was just one, just very rewarding, and I always enjoy it, and you know, notes and notes and notes, and I realized, ah, we don't have time to cover all this, but there's some imagery here, and in fact, the first many times that I read this, I didn't even, you know, you go, I don't get this, I don't understand this, because we don't speak like this, but to kind of get our hands around some of the imagery in 
chapter uh, in Psalm 104. I want to just mention a couple things. First of all, in sections, the first section, verses 1 through 4, is a picture of God who's robed in light, okay? What's it mean to be robed in light? I don't know, but that's the first day of creation, right? Let there be light, and he's robed in his own creation as he comes. But the imagery goes further than that. It's the imagery of a tent and a temple, it's an imagery that goes to the, to the heavens. It's imagery that goes down to the water. It's imagery of God coming on a chariot that's clouds. It's imagery that carries with it this ministers of God that are fire and wind and those kinds of things. So God is using his creation. But there's a picture here of God in his temple, his palace. And it's a picture of God coming, if you will, from his heavenly palace, his heavenly temple, coming down to earth. And remember the kingship theme that resounds through this section and throughout all that this is a king who comes and he brings his rule he brings his dominion to the uncreated earth the unformed earth the chaotic rebellious earth he brings that down so it's a picture of him returning coming down to earth to bring his benevolent rule and so we understand that creation insofar as in and of itself is good it's good because we have a good king who comes to bring his rule there and so that's the imagery of the first four verses that's there. But then it goes on 5 through 13, gives us picture in the primary theme or motif here is water. The first 5 through 11, you see that the water described there, it's not good water. It's water that's chaotic. Describes it as the waters of the deep. That's just not a lot of water. It's not just deep water. It is waters that are destructive, waters of chaos, waters that are uncontrollable. And he steps into that situation. He steps in at creation and he rebukes the waters, it says. The waters of chaos and destruction, he rebukes them and they run and they hide and they go to their appropriate places that he establishes for them. And so God is the one who steps into the deep water, brings his order, brings his reign and his rule and establishes it there. But then the water theme goes on and, and it, it transitions from waters of chaos and destruction to waters that give life. And you can see there from 10 on through 13 and really different parts of the whole psalm that, that springs gush forth and, and there's, you know, it feeds the animals. And in verse 13, from your lofty abode you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. That God uses this water that was destructive, was chaotic, and now he uses it for his good to bring good to his creation. And so we have a great picture here of this king who comes, he brings his rule, he controls he brings the waters of chaos under his control and then turns them into waters that actually bring life then verses 14 through 23 we see the form and the beauty and the diversity there we also see other days of creation that are part of it we see vegetation as a part of that we see uh, birds of the air we see mankind as a part of that we see animals so the other days that are, are represented in this section but i think what's of note for us and and helpful is that we see man here the beginning and the end of the section. If you know anything, that they would emphasize a topic or a theme by placing it at certain places. And in verse 14 and 23, kind of bracket this next section. And you see in 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. We see that man's role in creation, God gives him one. As God is doing his works, he so gives man something to do. He says, man, I want you to cultivate what I've done, and so those aspects in creation, he's called us to develop, to bring them out. And in fact, everything we do ultimately is that. It's nothing more than cultivating what God has already put in place. Have you ever thought of that? We have created nothing. 
We've only taken what he has put in place and we use it in a kind of fashion and cultivate it in such a way. Maybe some of you have heard the joke about the man-making contest that God and man had where man and God are going to make a, a man. And so God starts and, man, and God says, okay, so he reaches down from the dust of the earth and he makes a man. And man says, okay, I think I can do that. And he goes down to reach some of the dirt to do the same thing. And God says, oh, no, 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 you go get your own dirt. You go get your own dirt. The starting point we have is what God has already given to us. And so there's, there's a cultivation aspect of what God has given to us as our role. But then the, the conclusion of this section reminds us of the work that man does. And in the section, verse 23, we see that in this context, the moon and the sun has been put in place. That there's days and night that are put in place. That they've marked the seasons. And then in verse 23, man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. We have a pattern established. Pattern established by the pattern of creation. It's a pattern of work and a pattern of rest. Pattern of day and night. Doesn't mean you can't work at night. It just means that God has put in place in us and within creation a pattern that we are to follow. And it's a pattern, it's a pattern that is a gift to his creation as he brings his rule and reign here that is a good gift to us to recognize and acknowledge that there's a pattern. To rest and to work is a part of that. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then verse 24 is a pause to look at this. How manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. How many, how diverse what a great picture of the wealth that we see of who God is. Diversity that's there in his creation. And then in verse 25 and on, it describes this. The sea moves on to day five. Sea with the great creatures and many of them. And then it ends with this picture of the Leviathan. We don't know what that is, but it's just a really big fish. It's a, a whale, perhaps, some sort of sea creature that uh, was known and seen in that day. And the, the picture here. Is fascinating, and the language could be turned a couple ways depending on your translation. It says the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it, but there's also another version which is really appropriate and maybe more uh, accurate that you formed to play with. That we have a picture of God in his creation, creates this huge sea creature, this huge sea monster, which everyone feared in that day and age, and certainly we would as well if we were to see it, that he plays with it like a toy poodle. That God who Rebuke the waters of chaos is the same God who creates this sea creature to play with in this way. And so we have a picture of God's majesty in, in this creation. And then in verse 27 is this aha moment for the, for the psalmist. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. Everything comes from you. Food, life, death, new life comes as a result of your spirit as well. And so... This is the, the condition, this is the deduction. As the psalmist looks around and he looks at creation and he looks at Genesis 1, how it drives him, he says, wait a second here, everything comes from you. There's nothing I have that I gained myself or earned myself or made myself. Everything comes from you and in fact, everything sustains me, sustains us. You are the one that does that. And then the response is really the final section of the psalm, 31 to 35. It says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. We see that praise is the appropriate response. It's the right, if you will, appropriate consummation to the creature as he looks around and says, wow, look what God's done. Why would he do that? I don't know. But praise is a response. And then in verse 34, it says, may the meditation, may my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. 
made my meditation. That's what he's doing, right? He's thinking about this. He's meditating. He's saying, God, allow this creation and your under- my understanding of creation through your word to be that thing which will fix my eyes, will give me something fixed that I can live my life around. And then may I rejoice in the Lord. And he shifted from rejoicing in his creation to rejoicing in him himself. And that's a natural step there. And so we see the flow of this, of this king as he comes. He brings his reign. He rebukes the waters. He brings waters of life. Then as he creates, we see man and animals that he provides for. Man, he gives a place there in his creation to do work and to do something. But at the end, everything and everyone is completely and utterly dependent upon God. So the question for us this morning After all of that, sorry, that's a lot of overview, and that's always the challenge of getting in in one sermon, all this. The question for us today is, how does this help us? As we reflect on, as we meditate on God's creation and his provision, his care for his creation, as it relates to us, how does that help us? How does it direct us? How does it guide us? What kind of fruit should that bear in our lives? And certainly many, many different kinds of things we could talk about, but the psalm sends us in a few different directions that I want to look at this morning for us. First of all, meditation on God's creation and care will orient us in our culture that has no fixed point. It will orient us in this culture that has no fixed point. I already mentioned that the immediate cultural backdrop of, um, of this particular psalm was speaking against particular gods, and he was setting up this idea of who the real God was in verses to false gods. And this psalm, this song, if you will, would replay that over and over, that the real God is really in control of all things. And that our reference point, don't be confused by what the culture says are gods or what the culture says we should run after, what the culture says should be the thing that directs our course. Remember who the real God is. Remember who he is, how he's revealed himself in creation. Remember who you are in relation to him. We must place the truth. Play th- the truths of God over and against the ideas that our culture communicates and embodies around us. So it's not just enough to get the truth of God. We need that. We need to place it side by side in an opposition to the truth that our culture holds out, which are really against it, which are really antithetical to that. And that's what the psalmist does. This is true. This is false. Remember this. Here's a picture for you to remember what truth is, what isn't, what's truly going to give you life. And so we want to set them against each other. So it provides this fixed point for us in a culture that is constantly moving, constantly changing, constantly saying we should run after different things. The Psalms were a kind of liturgy and they sang them. And it was a part of their lives, really throughout their whole lives and through their worship and their liturgy and their lives. And it formed in them these ideas. That was the idea. So is our worship on a Sunday. So is our times as we read our Bibles and pray. So is our times as we meet to encourage one another. All of that is intended to form our thinking and to bring it in line with what God has said ultimately is true. That, if you will, this liturgy of our lives should be the thing that should constantly be teaching us and forming us and giving us pictures of who God is in opposition to the world says is really the things we should run after. And the question that's asked is, what's the good life? God promises to, to give us life. Our world says, what is life? What constitutes life? What should we run after? And I'm going to tell you that our culture has its own version of the psalms and hymns. Just like the cultures around Israel had its own version of these same songs, these same hymns, so does our culture. And the question I want to ask you is, what are some of those songs? 
What are those messages? What are those themes that our culture emulates and sings and promotes and embodies in all that it does? I've been thinking about that over the course of the last week. And yesterday at breakfast table, I asked the question of my kids, what are some of the songs? And they had all kinds of songs, and it was a lot of fun at the table. I'm not going to sing them for you now. In fact, it's not even a song that we're talking about, right? It might be a song, but it could be any medium of a message. And our culture has many of them. And I think the challenge for us is to look and understand, what are those messages? And then what is it? How does the truth of God stack up against that? How does it speak against those messages? Because the honest truth is as we look around, we see the things that certainly look attractive, that look like they're God-like, that look like, yeah, maybe that could give life. Maybe I will go after that. Maybe that does help me bring happiness to my life or whatever. But the truth of the matter is it directs in a way that, that it is opposition to God. It has values that are underneath there. And it's not always clear, but God's word set against it can help us to see and to clarify truly what's there. And so the songs of our culture are not neutral. We need to know them and we need to oppose them with songs that God says. Songs that he says to sing as we gather together, as we spend time with each other, as we read. Some of the themes that we can draw out that this psalm gives us, and certainly the rest of Scripture gives us much more, we see God's transcendence, that he's pictured above his creation. He's not in creation. He's not embodied in it, but he is above it, and he's beyond it. And so as his created beings, he has called us to find life only and alone in him. That as we look around, life will not be found. We will not be satisfied with anything that is made, but only he that is unmade. Yeah, these things are good, and he gives them to us, but as we recognize that they're really gifts from him, and we look to him as the giver, that's indeed when we'll find life. As we look at his transcendence as well, we see the pattern of work and rest that's a part of this, and go back to Genesis 1 and 2, which does even more with this. But we need to recognize that the patterns of our life are not arbitrary. They're not just something that we get to pick and choose. Work and rest is a part of God's good gift that he gives to us. At the same time, the, the pattern of six days and one, six days of work and one day of rest is also a part of that. So our Sabbath, as our world would say, this one day is a day that I can do whatever I want to with it. That's not true. It is his day. We get a chance, and that's why we're here. That's why we rest. And to follow that pattern is a gift from him. And there's certainly many other things that our meditation on creation would draw us to understand. But it, all that orients us around the true God in opposition to a culture that gives us no real fixed point by which to live. The second thing, as we meditate on this, what to do for us. Meditation on God's creation to cultivate gratitude and contentment within us. As we look and we see that everything comes from him, it should cultivate within us a thankfulness by what we have, a contentment with what God has given to us, because all we can do is take what he's given to us and use it and to be satisfied with what he has given to us. And so there's a, a contentment and gratitude that's a part of it. Recall the Heidelberg Catechism that we read, and you can look back and it describes rain and drought, fruitful and lean, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All these are situations in which God has a control over that he brings to us. By his good hand, his gracious hand, everything we have comes from him. But at the same time, by his good and gracious hand, everything that we don't have comes from him. The things that we don't want that we don't have, that doesn't matter, right? But the things that we do want that we don't have, guess what? That's from his gracious hand as well. He has saw fit to not give us whatever it is 
that we might want. And so we sit content recognizing, oh, he's the giver. Okay, I will wait. I want, that's fine, but I can rest and I can be content that's there. And here again, there's a liturgy of our culture that shapes us, informs us, and fashions us. A notion of life that's constructed what, how? By stuff. By stuff around us. By excess. By more. By bigger. By better. By sexier. By faster. By newer. Whatever it is, it it calls us to say, no, you're not content. And it steals from us and it does damage to our soul. It breeds discontent, fogs our vision of what life really is. It dulls our appetites for what's really good. It steals our gratitude. It cannibalizes our contentment. It makes a god of our stomach. It makes gods of our appetites. And I can speak in the first person with all of those. Experience that as you look around and you find, oh, it's not life at all. In fact, this last year I had an observation come to me, and I don't know why I had to be 43 at the time, I think, you know, and, and get this. But as I, I wrote it down in my journal, and my, my words were this, the more I have, the more discontent I am with what I do have. The more I have, the more discontent I am with what I do have. I went, how can that be? And I realized it's not with what I have, right? The problem is what I'm looking at. The problem is what I want. And that's the challenge that our culture presents to us. Our flesh certainly jumps right in and receives that as well. And so the call of this psalm is to look and to receive from his good hand what we have. To see his benevolent rule in what we have and what we don't have. And to entrust ourselves to him. And instead of singing songs of discontentment and wanting something else, we should be singing songs of gratitude and contentment about God's goodness to us. And laying in bed at night as we look up at our our roof, we go, I got a roof over my head. As I wake up in the morning, I go, I got another day from which God has given to me. As I sit down at the table, they go, I don't know if I like this meal or not, but they go, I got food on the table. I got food to eat. As you go to your closet to put clothes on, you go, ah, I need some new clothes. I got clothes to wear. He's provided for us. As you go out to your work, whatever that work might be, I have something to cultivate. I have meaning in what I can do, whether you have a job or whether you don't. There's something that God has called you to do, regardless of what that work might be. And so we have this great situation, this great condition. As we reflect on those things, gratitude and contentment are cultivated. So, uh, orientation around what's true in our culture, gratitude and contentment. And thirdly, as we meditate on, on God's creation, it will anchor us in the chaos of life. I hope when I was reading through the imagery of the water and the destructive and chaotic waters of five through nine there, that you caught the picture. There's a great picture there of the God who steps in and by the power of his word rebukes the waters and they run and hide the waters of chaos and destruction and they go to the place that they're intended to go. That image, that picture of this God who brings his reign in this way should bring great hope for us who sometimes wonder if those waters haven't returned to our lives. As we experience in our environment, as we look around, we go, golly, I don't know if they're not back. I'm not sure if those waters, those deep waters of chaos and destruction aren't very much a part of my life. Did that work? Did the rebuke of God really fail? And it gives us great hope to go, no, they didn't fail. That his sovereign work and hand in our lives, they have not failed us. That he is still in control and those waters are still under his control regardless of what we might experience And so we see a picture of this great king who steps in and rebukes these waters. But there's another picture, and I hope that reminds you of another picture of another king who rebuked waters and they ceased. 
picture of Christ in the Sea of Galilee with his disciples there all around in the boat. Remember the picture? What did they think? We're going to be destroyed. We're going to be taken in by these waters that are out of control. Jesus stands up. I suppose he stood up in the boat. I don't know. And what's he say? Peace be still. And he rebuked the waves and the, and the winds. And they stopped. And there was a great calm, is what the text says. And then, of course, the disciples start looking around and going, whoa, <laughs> what just happened here? Didn't expect that. Another king stepped onto the scene and said, I'm the same one that spoke to the initial waters. I can speak to these. The same one speaks into our lives, our circumstances, and says, I'll bring my peace. Your circumstances might be ceased, but they might not. But my presence is enough. Because at the moment's notice, I can speak and bring this kind of peace in your circumstances. So there's an anchor that this gives to us for our souls. Finally, as we meditate on God's creation and his care, where does this lead us? I mentioned the fact that it orients us in our context of our culture, cultivates gratitude and contentment, and there's an anchor for us in the chaos and difficulties of life. But it leads us somewhere. It leads us truly to understand the final point of God's ultimate provision in his care in Christ. So you go, okay, where's Christ in this? Where's Jesus? I don't see Jesus in this passage. He's there. Well, here's the, here's the way this goes. Reflect on your physical material dependence upon God. Who you are and what you have, everything is dependent completely upon him, right? Now, now extrapolate that just a little bit further. In the same way, everything that you need spiritually and morally to stand before God, guess what? You're in the same boat. You don't have anything that he hasn't given to you physically, materially. The same is true spiritually. You have nothing that's not been given to you spiritually as well or morally. The way we stand before God, the distance that defines the distance or the, that between us and God is seen both in our physical makeup, our material need, as well as in our spiritual need. And so one who's reflecting on this shouldn't just stop on, I need God for my next breath. It should take you a little bit further to go, wait a second, I need him for so much more than that. Not end there, but say, I need him spiritually more. I need him to bring something into my life that I don't have spiritually, to bring that life and so this physical dependence becomes a kind of parable for our spiritual dependence upon him. He's creator and he is provider in that world. And we see that he does that in all that we need. The same he does spiritually. The same we see him as, as redeemer. As reflect on him as creator should lead us to reflect on him as our redeemer, the one who saves us. And indeed, if we read back through Psalm 104 with different eyes, we see this king who reaches down from his heavenly dwelling and he reaches down to the rebellious, chaotic, destructive waters of our hearts. And what's he do? Instead of those waters of judgment destroying us, those waters that we even saw depicted here, those waters are sent to the place where they need to go. And then instead of that water destroying us, he gives water now that will actually bring life, that actually sustains us, that actually understand what life is really all about. And so we see a picture of these destructive waters becoming water that actually feeds us and cleanses us and refreshes us. And then Psalm 103 chimes in when it says, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. 
the same God, the one who has rebuked the waters and they fled, the same one who helps to orient our lives and our chaotic culture, the one who brings an anchor to our souls, the same one who leads us. And as we reflect on our need, we must reflect also on the provision of Christ and run to him and to find the fixed point there as well spiritually in what he has done for us and depend through ourselves at his mercy. See, the power of God, as you read through the rest of the Bible, and certainly in the New Testament, is seen and depicted in the most profound way, not in creation, but it's depicted in his ability to redeem and to save his lost. And as we understand that, it gives us something solid to hold on to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this truth. Confess, we need you to do this in our lives. We have many needs, and certainly some days we have a better apprehension of this than others. Please remind us. Please use these songs as we sing them together, as we say them together, um, to encourage and build up each other. Father, provide those anchors and those things that we need for our souls. Most of all, help us to look to Christ for our greatest need of his forgiveness. Heavenly Father, as a congregation, we certainly have needs, and I'll present some of those to you this morning. Think of Philip Gabler and, and, and his recent diagnosis of type 1 diabetes and pray for Gabler family and ask that you would be uh, with them and that you would bring the doctor success in their treatment of this. Father, as well, I think of G. Marsh and his family with the loss of his parent and pray that, um, that you would be with, with him and, and strengthen him and their family. And for Carla Westfall, I also would pray for, for her father as he deals with his heart irregularities. And for many other needs and situations in our congregation that don't even need to be mentioned, but you know we lift them to you and ask that you would bring your peace, your provision there. Father, we pray also for the Puck Camps. I think about them and their, their ministry. I ask that, uh, that you would bless them and provide for them and care for them and use them um, to minister to those who minister and that even in their direct ministries to the church that they attend and to the interns that they have there, that you would um, equip them for that work and sustain them as well. Father, we give you all thanks and praise for the life that you brought to us. Keep our, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.